Good evening. As was stated, this is going to be more of a history lesson tonight, something that um, was a little out of my comfort zone, but hopefully we can learn um, along with that. And so something I had to ask myself before going is, why are we even studying history? And I could honestly not give myself an answer that I, that I was satisfied with. And so I turned to my high school history teacher, um, and he gave me two reasons. He said, first of all, we need to understand why we are the way we are. The reason we are the way we are today is largely in part of what, of what our history is. And so as we learn that, uh, we can learn more about ourselves. And so modernism t teaches us that we are self-made people, and that's false. A lot, of, I, as I said, in reality, a large part of who we are is because of our history. Not necessarily that it impacts our decisions that we make on a daily basis, but the fact is a large part of who we are and why we are is because of history. And so I believe it's important to study that. The second reason he gave me was that history repeats itself. And so if we learn from history, we will learn not to repeat history. And in that, we are a step ahead because history does repeat itself. And so the more we learn, the more we avoid. And so I begin my quote-unquote history lesson with those two points. So keep that in mind as we begin. Um, we are covering two chapters tonight. It's going to be a lot of information. We're going all the way from Pentecost to where the New Testament church began, all the way up to like Menno Simons. And so it's a lot of information, um, but hopefully we can all gain something from it. The New Testament church was born at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to the disciples. At that point, the New Testament church was ushered in, and we have a more of a personal relationship with God in comparison to what the Old Testament was, uh, a lot of rituals, sacrifices, and that's how we gain our um, covering of our sins. And right from the beginning, the New Testament church was attacked. There was an attack from the Jewish leaders. There was an attack from inside from people like Ananias and Sapphira and the hypocrisy that impacted the church right from the beginning. There's also heresy. Read Paul's letters. He speaks intensively about that, the amount of heresy that was in the church and how we can eradicate that from, that, from the church and also Roman, Roman leaders in general. So those are just a few areas that the early church was faced with persecution and with attacks. Moving on to some of the Roman leaders, a big one we can't talk about all tonight is Constantine the Great. And what was important about him in the year 8313 is he embraced Christianity. He embraced it to the point where he actually marched his army through a river and quote-unquote baptized them. That is how much he embraced Christianity. So now, what was formerly outlawed by Roman empires is now what's required. What used to be scorned and rebuked is now what is prestigious and proper, and that's Christianity. And so it went from being something that was um, persecuted to the universal religion of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Roman history, you know the Roman Empire was the known world at that time. And so... At this point, the known world is Christian. However, that had a big impact on the church as we know it. With Constantine came the merging of state and church. And that had major impact because the civil government dictated religion and the religious leaders attempted to control the civil government. And when those two mix, there's a mixture of Christian and pagan practices. Christian ordinances, which used to be holy, are now hollow sacraments. And stuff that was done to properly remember, for example, communion, now simply became a rite and a ritual 
that provided a false sense of security. And so what many would deem as a step in the right direction with Christianity becoming the universal religion was in fact a step back. And the church went from being a light to a dark world to actually being the dark world. And that issues in the dark ages or the middle ages, if you want to call them that. But still, God was at work, even in these dark ages, a light glimmer. We're talking about a few of these people who carried forth that torch in very dark times. Peter Waldo in the 1100s, his own personal Bible study led to a personal spiritual awakening. And his group gave a testimony of truth for many years. Unfortunately, that same group kind of morphed into the Protestant Reformation, and we'll get to that later on. Um, some more people, John Wycliffe was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. And his main thought and driving idea is that the Bible should be able to read by all. At this point, it was all in Latin. And so the common people could not read nor speak Latin. So people called Lollards carried Wycliffe's English translation around England, um, different tracts and portions of it. The established church, of course, hated him for that. Um, he actually died a natural death, but the church hated him so bad, they dug up his bones and burned his bones. Like, that's how much they hated this guy, simply because he put the Bible in the English language, the common language of the day. Uh, I believe there's one more here, and that's William, William Tyndale. Um, this is a quote he gave, or he spoke to a church authority, which I found fascinating. He says, if God spare my life ere many years, I will take care that a plowboy shall know more of the scriptures than you. He carried a torch, just like Wycliffe, translating much of the Bible into English. And what you, you guys are all reading in your King James Version is Mr. Y, uh, T Tyndale's work. And so throughout the Dark Ages, you had the faithful group versus the universal group. And the consistent practices of these faithful groups consistently exposed to errors and the flaws of the established universal church of the day. From the Dark Ages, we move into the Reformation. The Reformation marked a serious effort to reform the religious system of the day. The religious system of the day at this point was Catholicism. That was across the board. That's what it was, either that or pagan worship. And so we have to remember that Anabaptism was actually born out of the Reformation. It was different, but it, was, it came out of, out of that. And many of the Anabaptist leaders that we'll talk about tonight were actually once students of these reformers. And so that's why the study of the Reformation is going to be important. The reformers did not start out as wanting to start a new church. Their main plan was to correct the flaws which they saw in the church. But we'll see how that worked out for them. Um, but instead of really correcting the flaws, they actually started a new church, um, which is called the Protestant Church, because they were protesting the Roman Catholic Church. And some of the leaders, and we'll talk about this, are actually aided in the start of the Anabaptist movement. And so we're, we have three leaders we're going to talk about from the Reformation. These are men who began their life as Catholics and were, were impacting this Reformation time period. The first one is Martin Luther. Um, he entered a monastery in 1505, became a priest two years later, 
and then five years later, he was now a professor. And so this man moved quickly through the religious system, but he found no peace in it. In all his studies, in all his teaching, he could not get peace. And he recognized, he, he understood that the rites and the customs that he was doing and teaching did not save him. And so his theme became justification by faith, and, that, and we know that's true. And so his doctrine off of that became faith alone, and that's kind of where he fell short. And again, we're going to talk more about this, but he, he emphasized what God does for man versus the rites and rituals that the Roman Catholics used to pacify God. And so that was his big thrust, was faith alone and what God does for that for us. A few of the things he stood against were the selling of indulgences. These indulgences were something that you could purchase as a pardon for sin. They could be purchased as future sin. They could even be purchased for a dead friend or relative to cover their sins so they could get to heaven more quickly. And so that was one of his big things which he drastically um, rebuked and stood against. One of the Biggest things Luther's known for is for his 95 Theses. That came in October of 1517, and he put those on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And that was his list of grievances against, against the Catholic Church. And he put it up for the people to see. And, of course, the church hated him for that. And just three years after that, he was excommunicated and even declared an outlaw. Some of the teachings... Uh, that Luther had and the writings that he did was that he honestly envisioned a people church versus the religious hierarchy of the Catholic church. And it seems from his writings that he would actually have understood what the New Testament profile of a voluntary disciplined church looked like. His teachings and his writings would seem that he actually understood that. And he honestly hoped that his Writings would free people from the religious bondom that he himself had found himself in. He understood that radical change needed to be made. Some of the things that he saw needed to happen. And right here you're going to see this, this come up again and again. But he allowed the civil government to make the most move. He understood we need to make changes, but we'll make those changes after the civil government endorses them. And you're going to see that come up again and again from many of these um, leaders. He did not see his followers as really ready for the radical change, which he thought needed to happen. And his doctrine failed to produce a holy living because his doctrine was faith alone, justification by faith. And so you could claim to have faith, but that faith did not necessarily give a sense of obeying God's word. The legacy that Luther left in his wake was that he, he continued to use infant baptism as a way to bring people into the church. And he worked very closely with the civil government to control the people. The end result? A new state church with his name. And Luther himself lamented at the end of his life that his followers showed no change of life and were scarcely different from when they had been Catholic. So after all his writings, after all his teachings, he himself felt like he failed. Why? We'll get there. Another one, John Calvin. He became prominent in the 1530s. The theologian, he's best known for his Institutes of Christian Religion, in which he uh, states his teaching on internal security, which today we know as Calvinism, which emphasized a predestined relationship with God. And again, it did not preach 
or teach practical obedience to the Bible. And so his believers, once again, saw no need for a holy life. And so his end result was scarcely different than Luther's end result in that his followers may have had a little different doctrine, but their way of life was no different. The last one, and maybe the one we'll talk the most about tonight, is Jörg Zwingli. He was ordained a priest, a Catholic priest, in 1506. He was chosen as a priest in the city of Zurich. And the city council in Zurich gave him the liberty to preach from the Bible. Apparently that was something that was not really done. Um, but with this freedom, he became a revolutionary. He had three main uh, points of conflict with the Catholic. The Mass, which is the Catholic communion, believing that Christ is actually embodied in the bread and the wine. The infant baptism and a sale of indulgences, which we talked about earlier, the purchasing of forgiveness of sins. So those were his three big things. He taught voluntary church membership, and that's in contrast to infant baptism bringing in your church membership. And he also taught, get this, the separation of church and state. Remember that phrase because we'll get back to that because he kind of goes back on that teaching earlier. But at this stage, he's preaching these and teaching these things with the freedom he's given. Um, the legacy of Zwingli involved his followers believe that faith should follow obedience. You have faith in your doctrine. But that doesn't end there. You have obedience to the Bible. Again, that's what his followers uh, believed. His followers were hoping for a new day. And they thought that Zwingli would be the change. He was a church leader. He was respected in the community. He would be the one to lead them. Unfortunately, that never happened. His followers were disappointed because his, he modified his early teachings so that he could work closely with the Council of Zurich. And we'll see more just how closely that was a little later. And once again, just like Luther, he only implemented his change once the civil government approved of those changes. And once his followers broke from him, and we'll talk about that split later, and established their church, Zwingli became their number one persecutor. Zwingli himself died while fighting the Catholics in 1531. What point did Reformation have? We talked about only three of the leaders. We talked about their teaching. We talked about their legacy. And the fact that in the end, they may have introduced different doctrine, but their lives were scarcely different. I took this from a book, uh, Mennonites and Their Heritage. The Reformation had great and blessed results for the progress of the Church of Christ. It freed half of Europe from its deadening bondage of Roman Catholicism, and opened the way for millions of Christians to read the Bible for themselves. Praise God. That is a step in the right direction. However, with all those blessings, it must be remembered that the Reformation was not a satisfactory restoration of Christianity to its true original character as attended by Christ. Did the Reformation accomplish positive change? Yes. Did it fall short? Unfortunately. There was a lot of dates that you just heard. Um, but as we go back through quickly, from the day of Pentecost, we talked about Constantine and his merging of church and state and uh, the Christianity becoming the universal religion of the Roman Empire. We talked about Peter Waldo and his life, the work of John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. And then we have Zwingli, 
Luther ordained as priest at the same time, and then John Calvin into the 1530s. And now that leads us into the leaders of the Anabaptism movement, and we're going to talk about four in particular tonight, starting with Mr. Conrad Grebel. He was a son of a respected political leader. This man grew up in luxury. He was trained at the best universities in the nation. This man had everything going for him. But in his study of the Greek New Testament, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, and he came to Zurich and became one of Zwingli's followers. Once he was captured, um, this is moving along the story pretty fast, but once he was captured, he actually escaped from jail, living on, lived on a run, and he died in 1526 at the age of 28 of, of the plague, so he was not martyred. And he has served as a leader of the Anabaptist movement for 18 months, and half of those he served in jail. The next one, Felix Mons. He was another one of Zwingli's leaders. Again, that's why I said Zwingli is so important to the Anabaptist movement. Uh, movement. The man knew three languages. If you know anything about those three languages, you will know those are the three languages that the original Bible was written in. And so this man had a great advantage in studying the Bible, and he used it to his advantage as well. Mons and Grebel worked together well as the early leaders because they organized Bible studies, and they agreed on three main things. The mass was wrong, the use of Catholic images was wrong, and infant baptism were wrong. And those were kind of the three big grievances the Anabaptist leaders had with the Catholic Church. Maz and Grebel both wrote to Luther and to other reformers, simply pointing out their errors. Maz himself wrote to the Zurich Council, and simply to show that the Anabaptists were not rebels. They're simply standing for what is true. Felix Mons taught and baptized many. He was imprisoned twice. And he had the unique opportunity to record his testimony in the official record books just because of how often he was imprisoned. He was arrested in December of 1523 by the Zurich Council. And these are the four charges which they laid upon him. He tried to set up a separate church whose members must be sinless. He taught that the Christians ought not to hold office or bear the sword taught that the true Christians should have all things in common and were guilty of baptizing at least one person in spite of previous threats. Mons agreed to all of them but one. Can you tell me which one do you think it was? I'm sorry? Exactly. Brethren should be willing to hold all things in common. So a slight change made to the, to the charges. Other than that, he agreed absolutely to all, to all of those. And so at the age of 29 in January, early January of 1527, he was killed by drowning. While that's important, there's also one more important note about that death in that it was the very first death caused by the Protestant church, not the Catholic church. Protestant church is what came out of the Reformation. The people who are working inside Catholicism to repair it are now the same people attacking Anabaptist leaders. The third man, George Blaurock, he was also a priest of the Roman Catholic Church, and he was, became very dissatisfied with himself, with his religion, with the church, with his priesthood. And in that search, ironically, ended up in Zurich. 
He quickly partnered with Greb and, Grebel and Mons, and in the fall of 1529, he uh, became public enemy, enemy number one in that he entered one of the state churches in Zurich before the preacher was there and began preaching. He told the priest who was officiating that service that he was sent by God to preach. Rumor has it, or legend has it, that as he was dragged out the streets from being arrested, he continued to preach. He was imprisoned and banished several times, and he was a fervent missionary no matter where he went. These men lived on the run because of their uh, run-ins. In August 1529, he was also arrested. Here are his charges which they gave him. One, he forsake the priest's office. Remember, he was an ordained priest. Two, rejecting infant baptism and teaching new, new baptism. Three, rejecting the mass, and that is because they did not believe Christ was present in the bread and the wine. He opposed confession to the priest, and he opposed prayer to the mother of Christ. He refused to repent, repent or recant from any of those. He said they were all true, and he was burned at the stake at the age of 37. Three leaders come and gone. The fourth is Michael Sattler. He was, he was a Catholic monk, actually. And as he joined the monastery, he became appalled at the hypocrisy and blatant immorality he saw around him. And in his own personal studies, once again, he showed him the errors of the religion that he was in. And so he left in 1525. He joined the brethren. You can hear that term more. The brethren was simply the term which um, like the Anabaptists preferred to be called. All right, so Grebel, Mons, those guys prefer to name brethren. So if we keep hearing that term, you'll know what I'm talking about. In February of 1527, he organized a meeting in northern Switzerland. His goal for this meeting was to unite the brethren and to simply lay out their faith. And you have probably studied this in the, in the past. The Schleitheim Confession is what we have today. And it's probably Sattler's most important call, um, contribution to an Anabaptist cause. His death came in May of 1527 at the age of 37. He was sentenced to death by burning and torture and had his tongue cut out. That was his death. Again, I'm throwing a lot of dates at you. Let's just look over them. Our next little bit, we're going to talk about this split here. But in 1525, that's kind of the official start of the Anabaptist movement. Less than two years later, Grebel dies. He died of the plague. After the split, about two years later, Mons is gone. Same year, Sattler is burned. A few years later, George Blaurock is burned. Four years, four leaders come and gone. So that was an individual look at each one of those four men's lives. And I'm actually kind of going to backtrack and talk more about why Zwingli and Grebel and Mons and those guys went their separate ways. Again, we talked about this. Zwingli taught the heirs of the mass, and he endorsed the voluntary church. In other words, he did not teach the, the truths of infant baptism. He wanted a voluntary church. His followers begged for change. Have you heard that phrase enough tonight? Zwingli says, the council of Zurich will decide. He once again, like Luther and like the rest, he left it with the civil government at that point. 
Part of Zwingli's um, re reformation process, he held these public disputations or debates where he would bring in the Catholic leaders and himself, and they would have the Council of Zurich sitting there. And so what, the one we're going to talk about now happened in 1523, so about two years before the split. And the topic was the use of images. That's a big thing in Catholicism, the images and the pictures and then also the practice of the Mass. And so, at first they went well. Zwingli, his followers, again, that includes Grebel and Mons, and the Council all agreed that in the images of Christ's crucifixion and the practice of the Mass were unfounded in Scripture. They were false. Everyone agreed. But that's kind of where it ended because the Council was not sure of how to proceed. So, yes, we agree that these things are unscriptural. We agree that they are wrong, but they hesitated in moving forward. And Zwingli was willing to obey the decision of the council. So he was going to wait. He's like, once the council decides, I'll abide by that and we'll proceed. On the last day of the debate, Grebel stands up and he's like, look, we need to abolish the mass. We just established the mass is wrong. Now let's get rid of it. That's that, that's that's just totally get rid of it. And Zwingli counters and says, the council will decide. And so there's back and forth. This is a man we're not going to talk about much tonight, but his reply to Zwingli over this matter um, is interesting. Simon Stump, in his, his response to Zwingli, says this, Master Yurik, you have not the right to leave the decision of the, this question to the council. The matter has already decided the Spirit of God decides it. Simon's like, look, Zwingli, there's nothing to decide here. God already did decide this. The Mass is wrong. Why are you stopping here? Hans, or sorry, Mons, Grebel, and the rest realized that if the civil powers were left to establish religious change, Bible-directed ordinances would not come. And so they felt like Zwingli, like Luther, had held back, and that if they waited their time for hopefully things would change, that day would probably never come. And so, the three, Grebel, Mons, Blaurock, pressed forward, preaching, teaching, wherever they went. But a year later after this debate, it, the Zurich Council realized that many of the people attending the Brethren's Bible studies did not have their children baptized. And so they issued a mandate right after that, stating that, all children must be baptized to get into the state church. And if not, parents would be punished. They also ordered that Zwingli meet with these guys once a week to try to convince them of their error. And we have record of at least two of these meetings held in January of 1525. And the end result was Zwingli's strongest case or his main point throughout these two meetings was the fact that well, the Bible does not specifically prohibit infant baptism. Well, it doesn't. You can't find a strong teaching against infant baptism. So that was his, basically his only, his only point that he could, he could offer. Shortly after the second of these two meetings, uh, the council issues two more mandates. One, no more Bible studies. That's it, outlawed. And two... Zwingli and the rest are not meet anymore. There's no more debates. That's done. Ties are simply being cut. 
And your brethren find they're at a crossroads. Do they forsake what they believe? Or do they stay loyal to God and count the cost? January 21, 1525, the brethren are together. And after they pray, Blaurock tells Grebel to baptize him. And then Blaurock baptizes the rest that were there. At that point, there was a clear split. A line was crossed. There was no turning back. Any ties with the state church that were left were clearly severed. And they were committed, whatever the cost. That was it. We are done. And so that is talking about the Reformation. The Reformation leaders, their doctrine, what it produced. The Anabaptist leaders, the impact of Zwingli had on that. And now the book goes into giving a history on the names that we use today. Anabaptists, Mennonite. Where do they come from? What do they mean? We'll start with Anabaptists. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Grebel, Mons, Blaurock, Sattler, those guys, they called themselves the Brethren. That was their preferred term. Of course, if you're a public enemy, they're going to call you other things. And so they called them the Anabaptists, which simply means twice baptized. All these men were baptized as infants into the state church, and all these men had their believer's baptism. That's twice, and so that's where the term came from. The brethren used Mark 16, verse 16 as their thesis as why the believer's baptism is, is correct, infant baptism is wrong. He that believeth is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. An infant not believe, therefore an infant cannot be baptized. That was their basic premise, and that is why they continued as they did. Harold Bender, in his, one of his books, he says, The Anabaptists had faith indeed, but they used it to produce a life. Theology was never a means, was for them a means, not an end. And right there is where you will see the main difference between the Reformation and their leaders and the Anabaptists and their leaders. The Reformation, the Reformers were all about doctrine. You have Luther and his faith alone doctrine. You have John Calvin and his eternal security. Those guys had their doctrine and they pushed their doctrine and their doctrine did not lead to a more holy life. It ended with doctrine alone. The Anabaptists said doctrine is good, yes, but doctrine does not end there. It continues into a life of holy living and submission to Christ. And so the Anabaptists, as they became known, gained an identity because of their distinctive faithful obedience to scripture and how they carried it out. They did not hide their loyalty. They would not deny who they were. And their faith produced distinctive practices. The name Mennonite now. So Anabaptist was given to the Swiss brethren. The Mennonite name came from the Dutch um, Mennonite or Anabaptist movement. Which started about 10 years after the Swiss. Now we're in the 1530s, somewhere in there. The movement in, in Holland or in, had a very confusing and rather painful start, thanks in part to a man named Melchior Hoffman. He was a Lutheran preacher um, who kind of turned Anabaptist of sorts. He was a fanatic who promoted radical ideas about the kingdom of God, and his leaders, sorry, his followers, felt they were called to set up a physical kingdom in the city of Munster, which is in Germany. And so in 1534, these leaders, or these followers, sorry, took the city, 
in bloodshed and set up their own quote-unquote kingdom of God in the city. And so the, and the blatant immorality and cruelty is just, it, it's horrid the way that they did. And, but yet, they went under the name Anabaptist. And so the, the Anabaptists in Holland had to deal with the after effects of that. That only lasts about a year there in Munster before the civil authorities wiped it out. Um, and so we have a group called the Obanites because they were trying to stay away from the Anabaptist name because of what the Munsterites did to it. Um, these were brothers Obi and Dirk Phillips. They were very similar convictions to the peaceful Swiss brethren. And this, the Obanites are what cr are credited as the beginning of the Dutch Anabaptists. A man, that comes, a man that comes out of this is Menno Simons. And even though the hardness of the Munster Rebellion, we'll see how that actually shaped Menno's life and into the man that he was. So he was a priest, and he struggled with the inconsistencies and emptiness of his own priesthood, his own religion. Um, he did not have the peace. His own personal study led him to believe that he was in the wrong church. He honestly believed that, but he made no change. So while he said, yes, I don't believe I should be where I am, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to stay here, continuing my priesthood. And it was a, a slaughter of the group of these Munsterite followers. All right, So the same group of people that took that city in Munster by storm lived in a little colony, and they were slaughtered. And that shook Menno. It moved him because he saw the, the fate of these people who were simply misguided. They honestly wanted a new a, to find a true faith, but they didn't have a shepherd. And his own brother was one of those people who were who were killed in this in this massacre. And so he counteracted the fact that these misguided zealots were willing to die for a faith that was incorrect. While he himself had the true faith, he believed the Bible what it actually said, but he was not willing to make the change. And so in 1535, he surrendered to God. And so Menno became identified with the Obanites. He was baptized by the leader Obi Phillips in 1535. His writings and preaching impacted many, and that's why he's so influential in the movement. Of course, the authorities saw this as well, and so he had to travel throughout Holland and Germany, often secretly and taking very many precautions. But God spared him, and he actually died a natural death in 1561 after 25 years of faithful service. And so it's Menno's influence, it's Menno's life, it's his leadership that led to the name Menist. Um, the critics, once again, use that term very derogatory. Um, but however, this was possibly a change from the Obanites. And the reason that change happened was the leader, Obi Phillips, recanted of his faith and actually left the movement. This was the same man that baptized Menno. And so due to his departure from the movement could be one of the reasons why the name got changed from Obanites to Menace. And then gradually over the years, we got the name Mennonites. Again, as I said, the name Mennonite comes from the Dutch Anabaptists. But writers and historians over the years have simply called the Swiss Brethren and the Dutch Brethren Mennonites. And the Swiss Brethren, to this day, still call themselves by that name. 
So comparing the two names here, Anabaptists and Mennonites, and at first they were kind of used interchangeably. Today, they, the name Anabaptist simply identifies a system of belief, uh, Bible interpretation, and how we live. Whereas the name Mennonite, uh, generally anyway, refers to a church group or a congregation or a member of a group. Unfortunately, the name Mennonite has been diffused and confused by a variety of practices which are among us today by people calling themselves Mennonite. I talked about Luther's legacy. I talked about Zwingli's legacy. Let's talk a little bit about the Anabaptist legacy from Menno up until we are today. What are some of the things that they stood for? Maybe some of you guys could give me some of those. These are not really pulled from the book, but what are some of the things that the Anabaptists have left? What, are, what is the legacy that we carry forth today? What are some of the doctrine or the practices that Anabaptists or Mennonites have become known for? Non-resistance. Believer's baptism. One of the main causes of the split was separation of church and state. And that goes the whole way back to AD 313 when Constantine joined the two. And we continue to have that conflict up until the Anabaptists said, we're done right here. We're drawing the lines. We're splitting. Non-resistance. Um, again, with the, with the separation of church and state, we have the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. There's clear lines there. We believe that. Holy living. And that's in contrast with the Calvinists and the Lutheran, which their doctrine ended at doctrine and did not produce holy living. The Anabaptists are significant in the fact that their, their doctrine, in a sense, takes on more their simplicity, nonconformity. Some of these are kind of inter interchangeably, but the movement lived on even as the leaders were martyred. And we talked about that. We talked about in four years, between 1525 and 1529, four of the founding leaders either died naturally, which was only one, the other three were martyred. And still, the movement lives on. I couldn't really find a good way to wrap up tonight. And so I simply leave you with the question, why? This is something that I want to answer in my own life. I want you to answer that tonight as you interact with your, with your congregation members this week. Why? How did four men live short lives apart from Menno Simons who lived 25 years? Why, how could they live such short lives, such short service leadership, but the movement carry on? What, what was it? I don't have another half hour. Steve said I have another five minutes max. So I can't answer that question for you. And so that's how I'm going to end tonight, is simply leaving with the question, why? Why did this movement live on? What was it? And talk about the Anabaptist legacy. What's our legacy? God bless you.